0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Michael Medved, a legend in the world of American thought and political discourse. One of the first books I remember seeing around my house as a child was his Whatever Happened to the Class of 1965, which I believe was published in the mid 70s. I was born in 72. Michael began his career in public life as a left liberal political organizer and writer and became a historian, a movie critic, and is now an enormously popular conservative radio host and editorialist, where he welcomes on his radio show the other side structurally through a disagreement day and has had dozens of guests from the liberal and the left side. Jewishly, Michael is a Baal Shuba. He has become an Orthodox Jew. And he is here with us today to discuss his chosen passage, Exodus thirty three eighteen through 23.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm very glad. I mean, you asked the same question question that, you know, President Trump was notoriously asked, which is your favorite Bible verse. Do you know about the history of that? Because it's fascinating. No, I don't. He was asked uh, right after he spoke at Liberty University. And, you know, for Christians, it was a big deal. He talked about in two Corinthians, and you're supposed to say second Corinthians, you say two Corinthians went into a bar, but you say second Corinthians is the name of the New Testament book. So he was asked, what's your favorite Bible verse? And it was like Sarah Palin in the newspapers. She was asked, what newspapers do you read? She said, all of them. And she said, can you name some? Oh, all of them. They're all so important. I read all of them. And they asked Trump his favorite Bible verse. He said, well, I couldn't pick just one. There's so many verses that mean so much to me. And I love all of them. Bible's my favorite book. And so, can you pick one? He said, no. The third time he was asked, he was ready. What did he say? This one? No, he said, an eye for an eye. And he just said it that way. He didn't say ayin, ayin or "shain tachat shain, or anything, no, just an eye for an eye. So I actually spent more time thinking about it. I had warning in terms of your request.
0: So Michael, please tell us what happens in Exodus thirty-three, eighteen through 23, and why is it meaningful to you?
1: Well, it's particularly meaningful to me for, for several reasons. And there's so many. In fact, I will share with people so that they can see what we're talking about. And uh, this is the Art Scroll translation.
0: That's what I use as well.
1: It's a mystical passage, but I think it's extremely meaningful and relevant for anybody who writes history or cares about history or current events or trying to discern what God is trying to do in the world. For those of us who believe that God acts in the world and takes a role in our lives. In any event, it says, uh, and Moses. Has been speaking to God, it says face to face in the tent of meeting, but there's a pillar of smoke that comes up in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And, but people know that he is there speaking with God, but he is not seeing God's face, even though they are talking directly. And it says specifically in the text, they're talking directly as a person will talk to another person. And then Moses says, Enough of this conversation. He says, I want the real thing. He said, Show me now your glory. And then God says, I shall make all my goodness pass before you, and I shall pull out with the name Hashem before you. I shall show favor when I choose to show favor, and I shall show mercy when I choose to show mercy. He said, you will not be able to see my face, meaning God said, for no human can see me and live. And he said, behold, there is a place near me. You may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I shall place you in a cleft of the rock. I shall shield you with my hand until I have passed. Then I shall remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face may not be seen. And right after that, the next sentence is, and then Hashem said to Moses, carve for yourself two stone tablets. We're about to get the second tablets, which is important. In any event, the reason this is so important to me is because I think there are lots of us who at different times of life want to see God's face. We want to know that God is present for us, present in our lives. But it says right here, nice try. It's not going to happen. You can see God's back. And some of them will force him, some of the commentators say, and, and it's always been deeply meaningful to me. When God says you may see my back, he's passing by. In other words, to use something very much in the news today, Israel today is still basking. And the joy of really making two peace agreements, their third and fourth Arab states that are recognizing Israel finally. And it's a beautiful thing. And yet, again, we only see it as God is passing by. In other words, there are very few people who would say that, okay, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law is over there trying to make peace and trying to broker deals. And Donald Trump is not the most diplomatic peacemaker That you could possibly find. And no one expected too much of this whole process. But now at this point, you could say, well, wait a minute, pulling out of the Iran deal and uh, the concatenation of events and the Syrian civil war and Turkey's position pro-Iran, all of this has sort of happened in a way that is of great benefit to the Jewish state and to the Jewish people. And what you do, it seems to me, in history is you can identify, okay. This was God passing by. But it's very, very difficult to understand what God has in mind face to face.
0: And in real time. And so what it says here is, you will only see my back. So God is saying, you will know my presence after I'm done with that act. During it, you're not going to see it. That's the way
1: that I understand it. And there's a, I found a quote that I use prominently in, in my latest book, which is called God's Hand on America. And the, the quote is from. Otto von Bismarck, who says it is the job of the statesman to listen for God's footsteps in history. And when he hears them, to grab his coattails and hang them, which it seems to me is very good advice for any of our
0: statesmen. Absolutely. And I think another fascinating thing here is Moses, as you said, he's already has a closer relationship with God than anyone else in history. Abraham's tied, right? But he's already, without a doubt, talking to him face-to-face. And he still wants more God. You know, he still says, show yourself more to me. He has this relationship, but he loves God so much. He just wants more of him. And then it's one of the interesting things about Judaism is we have very little or no theology in the sense of theology being the study of God in heaven. We don't really think about God in heaven because we think about it the way you describe God's on earth, God's in history. And this is it. Moses is saying to God, show me your glory. And God's saying, that's not for you to see. Don't worry about that. You'll see my back.
1: Yeah, and the 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 commentators also say that when God says, "No human shall see My face and live," that even the malachim, even the angels, are not able to see God whole. In other words, if if you believe in a God who is the master of the universe, it's not some guy with a white beard. It's not Michelangelo's vision, as noble as that might be, and it's something. As a human being, you're incapable of fully, not just seeing, but comprehending. And that's why the process of theodicy, of trying to understand or explain God's ways to human beings, is a tough proposition.
0: And Jews, we don't even try. No. We don't have really a concept of heaven, certainly not of hell. It's, just, it's hard enough to understand what God wants us to do here on earth. And this is, I think this is what this passage is telling us. God is saying, don't ask theological questions. That's not for you. It's going to be challenge enough to try to understand what I want to do here, to be my partner here. And don't ask me to show me your glory because I'm not going to.
1: Right. And again, it's why there is so much emphasis on history. And not all the history is pretty. Not all the history is positive. A lot of the history is suffering. A lot of history shows Jewish people who are supposed to have a relationship with God behaving very badly. and. The idea is, however, to see some kind of through line and to understand God's purposes. And by the way, I think that's extraordinarily relevant to the United States, is that those of us who believe, and I think it actually is a majority of Americans, that America has a unique purpose, that it is an exceptional nation, that America is a unique and indispensable instrument of the Almighty, that people who say that don't think that that's because America is perfect, we're far from it. Tons of flaws going back. We have, thank God, fewer flaws today probably than we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. However, uh, we're an imperfect nation and we're an instrument to God because he needs an instrument. And what's he going to do, choose Belgium? I mean, the United States is so consequential and so profoundly important to the rest of the world One of the things that drives me crazy right now about our political discourse is people who talk about the collapse of America. There are people who talk about that on the left. There are people who talk about it on the right. And it's either, oh, if we get Biden and Harris in office, then it's going to be the end of America. The nation will collapse. Or people say another four years of Trump, we can't survive. It's going to be dictatorship. I I wouldn't count us out because I think we still have far too important a role play in the divine scheme. Dr. King, of course, said that the uh, arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice.
0: Absolutely. So beautifully put. And I think the proof of your conviction that America has a divine purpose is in the founding. Has there ever been a group of people as talented as our founders in all of human history? I don't know what the population was at the founding, but the odds of having a Franklin and a Washington and a Jefferson The odds, there are no odds. The odds are impossible.
1: No, no, I'll tell you again, my first book about divine providence was called The American Miracle, which uh, came out in 2016. And that book opens with a story of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson who were very good friends. They worked together on the Declaration of Independence. Adams was the basically the floor manager, the guy who pushed the Continental Congress to adopt the Declaration and to declare independence. And Jefferson wrote the document. And they were good friends. They ran against each other for president twice, bitter campaigns both times, and uh, their friendship sort of ended. And then after they both left the presidency, the friendship remained and they wrote to each other almost every week.
0: They died within hours of each other.
1: Yes. And it wasn't just the day. Do you know what day they died? July 4th. Yeah. And do you know what year? Was it 1826? 20, yeah, good for you. They died on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Now, the level of coincidence is so astonishing. They're the only two presidents ever who have died on the same day. And they're the only two presidents who died on July 4th, except Monroe did too, who was the fifth president, who was also one of the early founders. He died on July 4th, five years later, 1831. And then Adam's last words, he died in the evening just as the fireworks were going off and he was in his upstairs bedroom in his house, farmhouse at Braintree. And his last words, and several people heard it, is, liberty is safe, Jefferson still lives. And Jefferson had died five hours before with no telegraph, and he had no way of knowing. And for them both to die on July 4th, somebody has calculated the odds. The odds are about the same as drawing a straight flush three hands in a row in poker. And Daniel Webster gave this famous speech, and Daniel Webster was not a conventional religious believer, but about how this was a message from on high, that this young 50-year-old country, on its 50th anniversary, on that one day, the two surviving heroes, who were both very old for the time, Jefferson was 83 and Adams was 90, passed on the same day. It's the most remarkable 4th of July.
0: absolutely, and probably any one of 20 or 25 of the founders would be the most talented political thinker and actor in his generation. What could possibly be the odds of them all being not only alive, but alive in one place in the same generation, roughly, focusing on the same thing at the same time and to have birthed this country? There literally are no odds.
1: Here's another story from American Miracle. Is George Washington at age 23 was the youngest officer, he was a colonel in the Virginia militia, And he went to battle in 1755 together with the British Army under General Braddock. And people know this as Braddock's defeat. It was the first major battle of the French and Indian War. There were 71 British officers who went into that battle on horseback. Seventy of them were either killed or wounded. Washington had his hat shone off his head. He had his cloak Pierced by two bullets. He had two horses shot out from under him,
0: but no bullets scratched him. No bullet scratched him. And 70 of 71, he was the 71st, or was that somebody else?
1: Yeah, I just mentioned he was not. He was he was actually one of the higher ranking people and he was big. He was 6'3. So at the time he was a giant and he was riding on a horse, and everybody else gets shot around him, and two horses get shot underneath him. When he came home after the battle, which was a disaster for the British because almost everybody, General Braddock was shot and killed. Washington lived and he was uninjured. And when he came back, there was a pastor who later became president of Princeton University, Presbyterian, who said, I think of our glorious youth led by one Colonel Washington, who I cannot but expect has been preserved by the Almighty for some signal
0: purpose for his people approximately what year would he say said that? 1755.
1: That was when Washington was 23.
0: The president of Princeton said that in 1755? Yeah, but he wasn't
1: president of Princeton yet. He became president of Princeton later.
0: Yeah. But somebody of some authority. And- yes.
1: And then, of course, later in life, there's unbelievable story of Washington right before the Battle of Brandywine. There was a British sharpshooter who had him in sight, and there were a bunch of snipers who were up in a tree to try to pick off American officers. And they said that must be General Washington, who was the entire cause. And he didn't fire. And he was asked about it afterward. Why didn't you fire? Win the war for us? He said he seemed like such a noble individual. It didn't seem supporting.
0: And a previous guest on The Rabbi's Husband is Logan Byrne, who's a Yale law professor and a historian of, of George Washington. And Logan made the point that, of course, de Gaulle said the graveyard is full of indispensable men. Washington was actually the indispensable man.
1: Right, completely. Because without Washington, we don't win the Revolutionary War. Without Washington, there's no Constitution. He was the president of the Constitutional Convention. And he had this enormous prestige in 1787 because he had won the war. And so he also kept the convention together, kept it from flying apart to warring factions on issues like slavery. And then, of course, he was our first president who, remarkably, for eight turbulent years, keeping America out of world war. There was a world war going on between our former ally, France, and England, and our former mother country. And Washington kept the peace set up the United States financial system with a pretty clever Secretary of the Treasury named Alexander Hamilton. And you're entirely correct. I think about that. We had 2.8 million people in uh, at the time of the Declaration of Independence. And you have George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton.
0: Monroe. John Jay.
1: Sure. You can name more, but just take those six. Old towering intellects, And really, and today, with a country of 330 million instead of 2.8 million, the best we can do is uh, Trump and Biden. It's yuridat hadorot is the Jewish term. It's the decline of the generations.
0: Right. And this is so interesting, as tying into the passage, is that this is basically what God is saying, is he's saying, forget about theology, forget about God in heaven. He's announcing, as you said, I'm going to be here with you on earth and you'll see me by my back. And then here we are however many years after 1776 or 1787, realizing that God was present in Philadelphia. And if someone disputes it, let's have them go through the math. I mean, I, I believe one over 10 to the 50th power is considered zero. This is probably approaching by scientists. It's like, that's just zero. This has gotta be approaching that. You know, if you say there's a one in a million chance of there being a George Washington to the sixth power, to the 10th power, it's not, it can't be explained in any other way. But
1: it's also, when you look at our leaders, our greatest leaders, and by the way, including Franklin Roosevelt, including John Kennedy, including people on the left as well as the right, and including people who weren't particularly religious themselves, I did believe that part of what they were meant to do is discern God's will. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, again, an amazing story because he was on top of the world. He had just been nominated for vice president at the age of 39. He's a young man who was nominated for vice president in 1920. And he hadn't suffered from polio yet. This is in my new book. And President Roosevelt suffered from polio. And there are reasons why he would never have been president. And certainly, I don't think ever have been an, an arguably great president if he hadn't had the disease. And the perspective that it gave him. And he knew it. And he talked about it. And he saw it as partially being led. And then the other aspect is Roosevelt, they used to, as you know, do the inauguration on March 4th, not January 20th. And the very end of February, he went on a fishing expedition with some Harvard buddies. And he loved it. He was exhausted. He'd just been elected president. And in February of 1933, He's in Miami, Florida, and this crazy anarchist shoots at him from 10 feet away. He gets off five shots. The shots, Roosevelt is immobile because he's paralyzed and he can't use his legs. He's sitting in the back of an open car from which he had just spoken to a big crowd in Miami in uh, Bayfront Park. And this guy's on Gara. shoots at him. Now, he had stood up on a chair because he was a short guy. Zangaro was only five feet tall, an anarchist bricklayer from New Jersey, born in Italy. And it is utterly remarkable that with five shots shot from that distance, Roosevelt is untouched. The mayor of Chicago, who had just been talking to FDR, Tony Chermack, died. He was killed. And one of his, allegedly his last words, it may not have been, but it sounds nice. He apparently said, better me than him. And then, then he gets up to speak to the country. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and he had just conquered fear because his response after this attempt on his life was so remarkable. He was concerned about people who were wounded. There were total of three people who were wounded. Did you ever see any of that TV series, The Man in the High Castle? No. Okay, it's about what would have happened if the Nazis and the Japanese had won the war. It's an alternate history of the United States, basically. It's what Philip K. did. And what it's based on is Zangara hitting his target. In other words, if a lady from Iowa hadn't taken her purse and knocked his hand to the side, Roosevelt would have been dead. And what would have happened, he says Hitler would have won the war, everything, because Roosevelt's running mate, who would have become president because they had just changed the Constitution. John Nance Garner, Cactus Jack, was an isolationist and absolutely never, ever. He was also very anti-British. He would have never provided the key support for Great Britain. And there's a new book right now about the miracle of American rearming before the war. We went from a tiny army at the time of 200,000 to an army at the time of Pearl Harbor of 1.6 million. That was Franklin Roosevelt against much opposition but recognizing it had to be done and save the world.
0: And so it was th- this woman from Iowa who disrupted the shooter's motion?
1: Correct. He was standing on a chair and she hit his arm and then he had to steady himself. And then finally he was tackled by a bunch of people. But again, it's after shots and there are people falling and you can imagine the panic. Then Roosevelt's bodyguards wanted to get him out of there in a hurry. And he said, No, I've got to take Tony. And they waited to pick up Mirror of Chicago, Tony Chermack. And Roosevelt, apparently in the car, held like his handkerchief to try to staunch the bleeding and got into the hospital. False story. It's one of those great American stories that ends up having a uh, remarkable ending. And the whole idea is America's not an accident. Israel.
0: No. And, and in, in our lives, too, I mean, you know, a woman sees a man, a man sees a woman across the street, they get married, they have kids, where are the odds of that happening? And God's hands is, is anywhere and everywhere. We just have to open our eyes and look, open up to the certainty that God is here. Think of how much better life it would be.
1: There's also, there's also a passage in Shas with Rabbi Yossi who, um who is asked by this Roman matron, who's an interlocutor of his, you say that God created the world and worked miracles for Moses. What has he been doing since then? And you know the answer.
0: Making matches.
1: Making matches, which is harder to do than splitting the Red Sea. Harder to bring something together than to split something apart. And again, we we don't know each other yet, but we're getting to. Absolutely. How long have you been the rabbi's husband?
0: I've been the rabbi's husband since uh, November of 2007. I mean, not the podcast. That's when I married the rabbi.
1: Do you have the same sense that I do? My wife and I are coming up to our 36th
0: anniversary. Must have.
1: And we met in a completely bizarre, uh, what are the odds? Where'd you meet? The point is, I, I do not believe this was an accident. We met at Santa Monica beach in a very cold September day where there was no one else at the beach. And I went out, I had a boogie board or surfing board and she was body surfing. And I went out into the ocean and and my opening line, brilliant, was, well, what do you do that allows you to come to the beach on a Tuesday afternoon? And she said, oh, I'm a psychologist and a writer. I said, oh, writer? I'm thinking, you know, it's LA, uh, you're writing screenplays? She says, no, I write books. I said, any of them published? And she says, my second book just came out. And I said, "What? what is it? And she told me it's called First Comes Love, deciding whether or not to get married. And she said, what do you do? I said, I'm, I'm a writer too. And she said, Oh, what have you written? And I said, Well, I'm, my fifth book is just coming out. And she said, And your books aren't? I named them. And she says, Oh, you're Michael Ledman, aren't you? And I said, Yeah. And I said, How do you know? She said, I reviewed one of your books for the LA Times.
0: Wow. Was it a good review?
1: No. And I remembered immediately. I said, You're not, <laughs> you're, you're not that woman with the unpronounceable last name. You're not that Diane something. She said, Yes. I said, I remember There was the only negative review that book got. That's great. What are the odds? And that book, we met in 83, and that book had come out in 79. And again, literally the second time I saw her, when I was invited over for tea, and first time, you know, in clothes, right, because we were all off the beach, I knew.
0: And you just know. I got engaged in nine weeks. Absolutely. You just know. Yeah.
1: And for people who doubt that God is involved in the history of America and the history of Israel— It seems to me that many of those people probably do see God's hand, at least in their own marriages. I think most people who have lasting, meaningful marriages see something bigger than just two people or a roll of the dice.
0: Well, and of course, in children too. I mean, no human being has ever created a two cell organism, and then we get together and we create the absolute majesty of another human being.
1: Yeah. Again, these are all American daily miracles. And we have lots of them if you can find them. And they're easy to find. Einstein reputedly said, and it's like a lot of stuff Einstein said. We don't know if he really said it, but it's in Bartlett's. He said that there are two choices in life. You can see nothing as a miracle, or you see everything as a miracle. And I think that people of religious faith of any kind go to the latter choice.
0: And Rabbi Heschel said the appropriate orientation to the world is one of radical amazement. Right, Just be radically amazed.
1: At radical and perpetual amaz- amazement.
0: Absolutely. That's right. Radical and perpetual. Well, Michael, thank you for such a fascinating conversation. I mean, this is why the Torah is so great, because its truths keep coming. And how the Torah in your passage, Exodus thirty-three eighteen just shows us how God is in our lives today, in the lives of our country. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible to another text, which is that of Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And in the book um, on the first page, he tells a story of, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had uh, become a parish priest. He said, he saved a lot of Jews and had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, There is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Michael, in all of your years as such a leader and a pioneer in American public discourse, what are two things that you learned about mankind?
1: Learned about mankind. Humankind,
0: you're supposed to say. Humankind.
1: Yes, there we go. One thing is that, and this relates to what we were talking about before, the biggest requirement for human success and happiness is partnership. And nobody achieves anything alone. And this involves not only children, family, it involves everything in business, literary endeavors, and people can work alone for a period of time. But the crucial element for feelings of satisfaction and accomplishment is partnership. Then there's there's something else that Heraclitus uh, said character is fate. And I do think that there is an element here, and this is very controversial politically, there's an element where people have a personality or a disposition and when you're talking about the happiness that everybody seeks there are people who will seize it you know there's that old story about the optimist versus the pessimist the pessimist is somebody who if given a pony says oh gosh I'm going to have to clean up all that horse poop and the optimist is someone who if given a room full of horse poop will say there's got to be a pony in there somewhere that the temperament character are very important in politics and happiness and making matches, which we we're just talking about. My wife was a clinical psychologist and author in her own right, as we just said by the she's now done seven books. Dr. Diane Medved cites a study which changed her life, which was, she did her PhD. dissertation on people making a, a decision to have or not to have children. And there's a massive study where they interviewed tons of people who had children and tons of people who never had children for whatever reason. And they had assumed that there would be a clear pattern showing that having children made people happier. It wasn't the case. And what was the case was temperament determined everything. In other words, for people who had a negative temperament, maybe they were blessed with three children. They never call me. They're such a disappointment. Uh, you have no idea the sorrows I get from my my children. People who are negative. are going to react that way. And then people who are positive on the other side. Well, it's true. We've never been blessed with children. But my husband and I had a chance to travel. I've had a chance to pursue my passions in life. That really a great deal depends upon maintaining the right and the positive attitude. And uh, especially when trials come and they come to all of us.
0: Now, do you think temperament is a choice? Like, can you choose to have a positive disposition or a negative disposition? Or is it something you're born with? Because I think it's something that can be cultivated.
1: I think it can be cultivated and developed, but I think that there are tendencies. There are people who are just a gloomy gus. I mean, they just are. And n- no amount of, of success or money or anything else can make them happy. And then there are other people who are unassailably positive and optimistic. I mean, you read about some of the experience of some of the tzaddikim, some of the saints, righteous people in the camps. I, so, yes, I, I do think you're right. It can be cultivated. And by the way, and the Torah wants us to cultivate it. One of the other verses that I was talking about was the idea of Sefer Parim Yafo, that you're supposed to maintain a positive face.
0: That's right. The Torah, it wouldn't say that if it was just natural and you couldn't do anything about it? What would be the point of saying it? It says you should maintain, which means you can maintain. And if you don't have it, you can cultivate it.
1: Yes. The two things that I've learned, and thank you for asking about Andre Moreau, I would say the importance of partnership and particularly the importance of sustaining those partnerships of a positive attitude and as much as possible, a grateful temperament because that's the one thing to cultivate things and this by the way gets us to what's so wrong in america right now is it's better to feel grateful than guilty it's better to express gratitude than to gripe and one is going to lead to positive results the other leads to nothing and the idea of attacking the united states for all of our shortcomings and we have them is extraordinarily negative produces nothing good Whereas the act of thanksgiving, of giving thanks for the blessings we have, that always enriches and helps to produce that kind of smiling countenance that God wants us to have.
0: Well, and of course, the first thing that an observant Jew says in the morning is moda ani, which means not I am grateful, but grateful am I. The locution is as strange in the Hebrews and the English, but it's teaching us you should acknowledge the existence of gratitude before you acknowledge the existence of yourself. It should just define who you are, be the first thing you think about, and then go through the day.
1: And also, in the Code of Jewish Law and in some of the interpretations, the very first commandment, rise up like a lion for the service of the Lord. It doesn't say, rise up and fetch, <laughs> or to talk about your, your aching joints or anything else that may befall you. And, and of course, at a time of pandemic, and a time when we're in the midst of this very trying electoral season, there's all sorts of reasons to rise up like a lion try to serve the Lord and to do so by saying moda ani, grateful am I.
0: Amen. Well, Michael, thank you for such a fascinating discussion and happy new year.
1: Thank you. You too. I am sure that a lot of the the arduous stuff that we're all going through right now, smoke in the air here in Seattle and a, a lot of real pain in our country at the moment, next year at this time is going to be regardless of politics is going to be much better. God willing. Thank
0: you. Well, thank you.